0: If you have your Bible with you, uh, would you turn to 1 Kings? Uh, hmm, 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 hmm. Well, I'm in the wrong Kings. What in the world? First uh, Kings seventeen, uh, if you would, and that is page one hundred or two hundred forty-five. Uh, if you have there, your Bible app, go ahead and open that. If you go to the events tab, you'll find us there, and all the notes are there for this morning. And uh, we're starting. By the way, if you're here for the first time, we're really glad that you are here. We have a gift for you on this table right over here, just our way of bribing you to come back again. And uh, but today we're starting a series. Uh, And we're going to look at a guy in the Old Testament whose name is Elijah. And if you have never heard of him, he's an Old Testament prophet and one of the most interesting characters. And and that word character comes into play a bunch with Elijah because he is a character in the Old Testament. My guess is that some of us know at least a little bit about him. Uh, You may know that he, he, if you heard of the guy who called down fire from heaven uh, in the Old Testament, that's this guy. If you heard, there's two guys in the Old Testament who lived and never died. They were taken to heaven and didn't die. He's one of those two guys. In the New Testament, Jesus goes to the top of a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he's transfigured before them. His appearance changes, and two Old Testament figures appear and talk to Jesus on top of this mountain. One of them's Moses. One of them is this guy we're getting ready to talk about, Elijah. And they've been gone for centuries. And they're talking to Jesus. And just so you know, Peter, James, and John... Totally freaked out by that whole thing, uh, just like we would have been freaked out if we'd been there and someone centuries who had been gone for centuries uh, appeared in front of us. Elijah is mentioned more times in the New Testament than any other Old Testament character over 20 times. As a matter of fact, one of the times he's mentioned is in the, one of the last books of the Bible toward the end, James chapter 5. James writes this about Elijah. So he's pointing back to this character. He says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. It's interesting. Elijah was a human being just like we are. Sometimes we take Bible characters and we blow them up larger than life. We put them on stained glass windows. We put them on a pedestal and and we kind of can't relate to them anymore. We can't identify with them. It's like they're not human. But what we're going to find out about Elijah is that he faced the same temptations that we do that he uh, had the same depression, the same struggles, had ups and downs in his life, just like we do. And we'll see them over the next several weeks. But what's interesting is those are exactly the kind of people that God uses. He used them then. He uses them today. So as we begin our look at Elijah, before we even read uh, the first verse out of 1 Kings 17, I want to make sure you get this right out of the chute. It's in your notes. God often uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary things. He uses ordinary people like Elijah, like us, to accomplish uh, extraordinary things. So here we go. Uh, the Elijah that we read about in James 5, 17, uh, the story that, uh, that James alluded to is the story we're going to look at today. Uh, verse 1, 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, pause for a moment, Ahab is the king. So this should read King Ahab. He's standing in front of the king of Israel. So he goes to the king of Israel and he says, As the Lord, the God in Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, we'll stop for a moment, get a little bit of understanding of where we are in history because I want to paint the picture of the background where we're going to be spending the next few weeks It's 900 years before Jesus is born. That's when Elijah shows up, 900 years before Jesus is born. So if you go to the Christmas story and and turn left and go back 900 years, that's where we are. And at this time in Israel's history, just so you know, it was politically and economically prospering under the rule of King Ahab. Peace had been established with Judah in the south, and there was this mutually advantageous alliance that had been formed with the Phoenicians on the coast. That's important because the Phoenicians were the undisputed leaders in the uh, international trade on water. So they, they owned the oceans, they owned the seas. And the, this time in Israel's history, I'm just telling you, it was great it was great to be alive. Gas prices were down. uh, Firework sales were up. It was just a super time to be alive. As a matter of fact, if you would, on your notes, would you just write the word great? All capital letters, underline it, exclamation point, because it is great to be in Israel at this point. Peace and prosperity, not bad things in and of themselves. But before we begin a re-elect King Ahab uh, campaign, let's take a look at what the Bible tells us about this king who's ruling Israel. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, so we're we're finding out where in history he fits, uh, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years Now Ahab, his dad's name was Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those who had gone before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Okay, we need to stop a moment again, all right, to make sure we understand what all of this is saying. The context of the time period... Israel, just so you know, uh, was at one point united under the reign of three kings. Saul reigned first and then King David. Remember the Goliath slayer, the writer of the Psalms, that guy. uh, He was second. And then Solomon, his son, was third. But after Solomon's reign, there was a civil war in Israel. And the nation divided in two. There was the north and the south. Israel was north. Judah was south. The northern kingdom had 19 evil kings. They had 19 kings, a 200-year period, 19 in a row. I don't mean they were inept. I don't mean they were goofballs. I mean they were evil leaders. They were rotten men. But the thing that's interesting, and I don't know if you can imagine, 200 years, 19 consecutive evil leaders, Here's what's interesting about who we're studying Ahab, the guy who's king right now in our story, he's the eighth in that line, and he was the absolute worst ever. He would become the worst king ever in the history of Israel. And that's the king uh, who is in power when Elijah comes on the scene. Verse 31 said that Ahab considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the first of those 19 kings. He's the one who deliberately brought idolatry, idol worship, specifically the God of Baal and the God of Asherah into Israel. So Ahab, who's the eighth king, continues this practice that had begun before him. And he ruled for 22 years. And verse 30 says he did more evil in the eyes of God than any of the kings before him. And by the way, any of the kings after him. So this is a very dark time. Everything seems to be great, but it's very dark spiritually. Verse 31 says he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel and he began to serve Baal and worship him. Now the worship of Baal and Asherah is central to the problem that's going on in Israel. So I'm going to explain that to you here in just a bit. When the Israelites left Egypt, remember they were in slavery in Egypt. When they got pulled out of there, they come to the promised land, they enter Canaan, and they found a land of farmers, which was interesting because they were shepherds. They they weren't farmers, they were shepherds, but they find these farmers there, and this land is fertile beyond anything that they've experienced, especially over the last 40 years. They're wandering in the desert, they're wandering in the wilderness, but they find this fertile land, and, and the Canaanites attributed the fertility of their land to their god Baal, which is where the Israelites' problems begin. Because the question becomes could the God who led them out of Egypt, who saved them from slavery, who got them through the wilderness. Could he also provide for them in this fertile land? Or did they need to worship the fertile gods of that country just to be safe? And so they wrestled with that and they landed on maybe to be safe we should worship both. That's a problem. When Ahab married Jezebel, He cemented this into the culture. Jezebel was so bad that her name has come down to us as a symbol of evil. How many of you have a friend named Jezebel? How many of you considered naming your daughter Jezebel before she was born, not after? Uh, (laughs) Ladies, if you've ever been called a Jezebel, not a compliment. We know that, right? We know that. How many, listen, you don't even see that name in the little baby books anymore. Ahab married a woman from the nations that God said, don't marry these people. He told them not to marry them. Is is it obvious to say that tragedy results if someone marries or has a relationship with someone who is not a Jesus follower? They don't bring the same values. They don't bring the same respect for God and for his word. And they will usually pull us backwards. That's typically what happens. I wonder if you're familiar with these words from the New Testament. The apostle Paul writes these. uh, And I first heard this when I was a, a, a boy. So it's the King James Version. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Have you ever heard that before? When I was growing up and they said that verse, I always thought when I heard that word yoked, I thought of an egg. Because I grew up in the city, so I didn't—I'd never been on a farm. I didn't know what this looked like. But the yoke that Paul is talking about is this right here. It's what connected oxen together so they could pull together. The New Living Translation may say it a little bit more easily for us to understand. Uh, says, "Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live?" With darkness. And this is just a warning to us that when a Jesus follower yokes themselves to, when a Jesus follower teams up with, when a Jesus follower marries an unbeliever, listen. It, it doesn't mean that you don't have things in common. Of course you do. But what it means is that at your core, who you are, why you do the things that you do, they'll be at odds with each other. Again, you may share some of the same goals, but how you're going to get there may look entirely different. Someone once said, if you're a child of God and have a relationship with the child of the devil, it won't be long before you start having serious problems with your father-in-law. And, uh, and we need to keep that in mind. God told his people not to marry outside of their faith. And someone who has done this, ask them how it has affected their life. Because the closer they get to God, one of two things is going to happen to them. The closer a Jesus follower gets in their relationship with God, either it strains the relationship with their spouse, because now they're getting further apart, or they become concerned. They spend the rest of their life concerned about their spouse because they've never made a decision for Jesus. And they will be separated for eternity. Listen, it tears your heart apart. So when God says to his children, don't be yoked, don't marry an unbeliever, He's not saying if you do, you'll go to hell. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is it will make life really hard here. I have a better way. Just everything else, I have a better way for you. If you'll follow my way, it will be better for you. But here's the thing. For Ahab, it was profitable from a political standpoint for him to marry Jezebel because she was the daughter of a man of influence. And even though Ahab was, listen, he was no choir boy before he met Jezebel, she pulled him further away from God. Truthfully, Ahab was king, but Jezebel controlled the throne. She was the one who wielded the power in Israel. And Jezebel wanted to uh, have the worship of her God declared the official religion of Israel. So I want you to understand who Baal is. Baal was the God of fertility. He was the God of rain and the God of crops. This is really important to the story. The fact that he was the God of rain. Uh, That information will come into play in that verse that we read. But how are things going in Israel? Keep in mind, how are things in the country? Gas prices are down. Candy prices are good. Uh, We all drive new cars. How is it? Man, it's great in Israel right now. Listen, Baal worship included animal sacrifices. And at times of crisis, they would sacrifice their children, specifically their firstborn, to gain personal prosperity. They also practiced this thing called sympathetic magic. What they believed was that they could influence the gods' actions by performing the behavior they wished the gods to demonstrate. And because the uh, sexual union of Baal and Asherah, they believed that that produced fertility in their land, they engaged in immoral sexual acts to cause the gods to join together, ensuring good harvest. So the worship services usually were accompanied by drunken orgies and all kinds of sexual perversion. So you can imagine most guys didn't have trouble, you know, wanting to go to church there. Uh, uh, I imagine what their website looked like, but uh, don't go there too far. Don't go there too far. Here's the thing. Here's, listen, this was, this was an abomination before God. It was detestable to him. But there's this, what I want you to understand is there's this tug of war between God and the culture. And quite frankly, the people of Israel were trying to live on both sides and you can't, you cannot have it both ways. God is either number one in your life or he's not at all. He won't be number 2. He doesn't take the back seat. You're not the driver. If you've got that bumper sticker God is my co-pilot, let me tell you need to take the bumper sticker off and change seats cuz you're in the wrong chair. God is the pilot when he's in your life. He's number 1. As we celebrate the founding of our country this week, can you see that God is still in a tug of war? Over the hearts of the people of our country, Psalm 33 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people that he chose for his inheritance. David Barton and other historians have documented the fact that while our forefathers were not perfect, they did found our country on biblical principles. And it's evident in the earliest writings of our country, inscriptions on historic buildings, as well as monuments. You'll find references to God and his word uh, on the U.S. Capitol, on the Lincoln Memorial, the Library of Congress, outside the building where the United States Supreme Court meets. You know what, uh, do you know what the tallest structure in Washington, D.C. is? Think about it for just a moment. The tallest structure. Washington Monument, all right? As a matter of fact, by law, nothing can be taller than the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. It has to be the tallest building. At the top of that building, I don't know if you know this or not, at the top of that building are two Latin words, leus deo. No one can see those words. They weren't put there so we could all look at them. No one can see them. Yet they're perched atop the mountain, or overtop the monument, overlooking the District of Columbia. Think about that. They overlook the most powerful city in the most successful nation in the history of the world. Leus Deo, Latin, for praise be to God. Think about what that means about where our country started. George Washington said it's impossible to righteously govern the world without God in the Bible. Psalm 33 says, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on, whose, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. May I suggest as we get ready to celebrate the fourth, and I, it, it started in our neighborhood last night with fireworks. Not, may I suggest as we celebrate this week, we need to pay attention. That which stands in opposition to God and him having first place in our lives can creep in subtly and before we know it, we become someone we didn't even know we were becoming and we get comfortable with it because it happens so slowly and so unsuspectingly. Who do we trust to take care of us? Can God still really take care of us? It's 2017, things have changed. Can he still take care of us or do we need to rely on our own tech savvy and street smarts, ingenuity, even when they're at odds? with what God says is the culture around us influencing our behavior when what God says stands in complete opposition to what our culture is saying in Elijah's day the main obstacles to Jezebel's religious pursuits were the prophets of God so the queen launched this campaign to rid the land of the prophets of God. And many prophets were killed at her command. Others went into hiding, were never seen by anyone because they were scared to death for their life. It was not a good time to be a prophet of God in Israel. Jezebel, the Baal worshiper, was challenging the existence of God. She was trying to remove him from the hearts of the people of Israel. And what's interesting to me is God did not send an army of angels to wipe her out, although he could have. He didn't even raise up an army of people to wipe out, although he could have. What he did do was he raised up one man. God did what God so often does. It is not at all what we think it's going to be. At a moment in history when no one was complaining because everything was great, but spiritually darkness was everywhere, God called Elijah to be his point of light. Now, Elijah was an outdoorsman from the whole country of Gilead. His counterpart in the New Testament is John the Baptist. I don't know if you've ever thought about him. I kind of picture him. He's this John Wayne kind of guy. He's, kind of, he's you know, part John Wayne, part Clint Eastwood. He rides into town. He appears before King Ahab and says, well, do you feel lucky, punk? You know, and if you know, if you know the movie that references, shame on you, uh, that 's kind of how i 've pictured him though here 's the other thing I want to make sure you know His name means the Lord is god elijah 's very name means the Lord is God. This may be one reason Jezebel hated him so much. He not only opposed her God, but every time his name is mentioned, she is reminded of the God she opposed i mean i don 't know if you can imagine her fury when she would receive a report. Like, you know, we hear Elijah is coming to see you. What she heard was the Lord is Yahweh is coming to see you. What she would hear is the Lord is Yahweh is preaching out in the wilderness. And I can just see her screaming and holding her ears and and saying the next person, listen, the next person who says that name is going to die. Don't ever say that name in my presence again. I want that man of God dead and I want him dead now. So when he comes on the scene, verse 1 says, Now Elijah said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives. But just to make sure we catch it, what they heard uh, was not just Elijah, but if you can pull that next one up, what they heard was, Now the Lord is Yahweh, said to, said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives. There'll be neither dew nor rain, right? In the next few years, except at my words. And I want to make sure we understand this picture because Ahab as king had absolute power as did the kings of that day. He had the power of life and death over everyone, including Elijah. This could not have been an easy thing to say to the king. He put his life in peril. Please don't think Elijah did not know who he was going to see. Please don't think he didn't know the weight of his message. This meant economic shut down in this agriculturally driven economy no rain shut everything down in our world it would mean you can't buy gas anymore there's none to get in our world it would mean not only can you not borrow money from the bank you can't even get your own money out of the bank It means you don't have electricity in your home. Life as you know it has ended. People will starve to death. Unemployment rate will reach 50, 60, 70, 90%. And yet this man of God stands down this evil king and says, there will be no more rain. And let's keep in mind that Baal, the God of Jezebel, is the God of what? You wrote it down. He's the God of what? He's the God of rain. It's a showdown to see whose God actually is most powerful. And Elijah is saying, Ahab, because you have encouraged the worship of the earth and the worship of rain, there will be neither until I see you again. And you will see just how weak your Baal God really is. Robert Ingersoll was a lawyer in the late, late 1800s. And he used to lecture... He was famous, actually, for lecturing against Jesus and the Bible. And I'm telling you, he was so persuasive that he almost always had a large crowd. One night after uh, just a horrendous speech in which he severely attacked our faith in Jesus, he dramatically pulled out his watch and he said, I'll give God a chance to prove that he exists and that he is almighty. I challenge him to strike me dead within the next five minutes. There was silence in the auditorium, and people became uneasy. Some so uneasy, they left the auditorium. One woman was so nervous, she passed out. And at the end of the allotted time, the atheist said, See, there is no God. I'm still very much alive. And at the end of that lecture, a young man said to a Christian woman, he said, Well, Ingersoll certainly proved something tonight. She said he certainly did. He proved God isn't taking orders from atheists. Listen, I... (laughs) We're going to see that over the next few weeks. Listen, we're going to see that Elijah is not, listen, this is not the story of a, of a man of greatness. This is the story of the greatness of his God. Because Elijah was not, he wasn't just putting his life on the line, he was putting his faith on the line. Elijah doesn't control the weather, but the God who controls the weather was controlling him. James five seventeen. Look at this one more time. He was a human being just like us. And God did not send an army of him, although he could have. He sent one person to stand up for his name to the king. And I would argue that in today's society, he may want to do a very similar thing right here. God may raise up one teenage girl to take a stand in her class against all the others for the sake of sexual purity. You think that will be easy in our culture? God may raise up a young business leader to stand up for integrity in a business that's lacking integrity. Do you think that will be easy? Will cost him his job quite likely. God may raise up one person to go into politics to take a stand for that which is true. God often raises up one person to make a big difference. Well, today someone's come to make commitments to Jesus. Corwin was at camp this past week, and he got to hear about God and to hear God speak to him in ways we don't always hear at home because noise ha- home has lots of noise, and camp is fairly quiet. And so today Corwin has come to say, I want to stand up for Jesus. So check out what's going on at our baptistry. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the the Son of the living God, God. and I I accept him as my Lord and Savior. Corwin, because of your confession and your desire to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, you are being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of eternal life. (laughs) and that is an incredible thing Uh, number one to baptize your son or your daughter into christ Uh, as a parent you just need to know there's nothing like that and i hope if you have children that you will have that opportunity as a parent to help them with that decision Uh, but maybe you've come today corwin's eight years old so simple an eight-year-old can understand it. So difficult that most of us who are adults still struggle, right? With what it means to follow Jesus in our lives, we're still, still trying to figure it out. We spend the rest of our lives doing that. But I wonder if you've come today and you've been wondering about that, if that's your next step, or maybe you already know it is your next step. I wanna say perhaps God is calling to you as he called to Elijah and he's calling you up to make a commitment to him before your family and friends to say that the Lord who is God is my Lord and my God. Maybe that's your next step. Or I wonder, you know, last week we started what we call the minor Project. And if you missed it last week, the offering time went differently. We actually handed money out. Aren't you sorry you missed? Uh, but we, we want to give you an opportunity because the, the minor project is based on a story that Jesus told uh, where uh, a, an owner handed out money to his servants and they were to increase the amount. And so what we've done is we've handed out money because what we want to do is increase the amount it will be used to feed the hungry in Haiti this October. We're going to be using it for a food bagging event to pay for that. So I hope that you will be part of that. Uh, We'll also use money that's raised beyond that to help send our team to Mexico this summer. You have the opportunity to be involved in that. He's raising you up. He's calling you up and saying, will you do this in my name? And just so you know how easy this is. Uh, rich was talking about last week he said he works with wood and blah 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 and guys like me hear that and go you know because we don't know how to do that what i know how to do is cut grass so uh, i'm taking care of a neighbor's lawn to raise money for this minor project it's easy anyone can do it uh so maybe if you were not here last week or you got out and didn't get a chance to to get some money they're out in the lobby today. I hope you will take a chance to be a part of that. God's calling us up. Also in our lobby today, uh, I hope you saw the, the uh, American flag out there. It was drawing your attention, first of all, to the fact that this is the week of July 4th. But also we wanted you to know, maybe you heard the story two weeks ago, the USS Fitzgerald collided uh, with another ship and seven sailors drowned. They lost their lives. This past Tuesday, I was reading that more than 2,000 people lined the streets to pay their respects. One of our members, who was a Navy veteran, was praying about it, trying to find a path that allowed them to give something back or do something for those sailors that survived this tragedy. And, then they, and they have to move forward with their life. And so they were thinking, what can I do? So they put together a box of supplies that they're going to send to those who survived because they lost everything when their ship went down. And then they thought, man, it would be so nice if they received encouraging notes. Uh, And so we have out in our lobby some note cards and their pens Uh, for children. There are pictures to color, and they can just write their name. We just thought it would be nice. They thought it would be nice, suggested to us, and we agreed. When this package gets to them, how great would it be if Jesus' followers sent them a note thanking them for their service and just letting them know they were thought of And that we prayed for them. So I want to encourage you. You're one person. You're one voice. To stand up in the name of God. And speak into the lives of these sailors who have suffered a tragedy in their life. And God may use your voice to speak encouragement and comfort and hope to them. Today God is calling us to stand up and to make a difference in his name. And we will. And what we stand, we're going to pray, and we'll pray for these sailors, and we will pray for what God will do through us. God, thank you for who you are, and thank you for stories like Elijah's. When we when we see one person stand up against a tyrant, an evil king who had the ability to take his life, and he stood up with a message not of hope for the king, but a, a message of of judgment and pain for the people of Israel because they had allowed themselves to drift from you. God, sometimes we get to be that point of light in people's lives, in a, in a world that is dark and no one even notices the darkness anymore because they've lived in it for so long. You allow us to be your light and we do get to bring hope today because of your son Jesus and what he did on the cross, just like Corwin who made that decision to follow him today. God, we get to bring that message of hope to people in our We're in our world, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. God, we pray that you would use us. We get to bring a message of hope to sailors, Navy personnel we may never meet in our entire life. But we get to be your voice in their life through a card, through a note, a word of encouragement. Just to let them know that they're being thought of and prayed for. And so, Father, we do pray for the men and women on that ship that you would help bring healing to their heart, that those who lost not just another crew member, but someone who was dear to them, a friend of theirs, someone they cared a great deal about, and they now live with that loss. God, we pray that you would wrap them up. Your Holy Spirit would come around them and give them hope and strength and encouragement. And God, may the notes that we write today make a difference for the sake of your kingdom in their life And may the money that we uh, raise over the next several weeks as we put our abilities to use, may they feed the hungry in Haiti. And may lives be changed because we've reached out in your name to people in another country, a point of light in a dark world, just like Elijah. God, use us, we pray, to change the world for the sake of your name and in the power of your kingdom. And we pray this through your son Jesus' name. Amen.